Thanks, Pastor. Appreciate it. It is uh, great to be back here uh, in Rochester. I love this community. I love this church. I love Nathan and Carrie and the uh, influence you guys have had on us personally and our Berean Fellowship is more than you know. And uh, thank you. And so it is good to be back here. You know, I am a reluctant preacher. I would really prefer just to be on a horse uh, with horses and cows. They're a little easier to deal with than people. When I got saved in 1990, it wasn't long before I knew that God was calling me to be a pastor. But uh, I was dang sure not going to raise my kids as preacher's kids. So we told God, we were pretty proud of the fact that we told God our life plan. Uh, we were so godly that we told God, we're going to raise our kids on the ranch, then I'm going to go to seminary, and then I'll become a pastor. Thank you very much, God. Don't bother me, and let me be uh, a cowboy for another 15 or 18 years or so, and then I'll serve you. And uh, I went to fill the pulpit of Mitchell Berean Church one Sunday. I was to be there one time, and there were about 25 people there, and I preached. And when I got done preaching, two of the elders came down the middle aisle with their arms around each other crying. They came up to me, and I, I'm sitting there thinking, geez, was the sermon that horrible that you're crying? Yeah. And they said, we want to repent. We know we're a legalistic church. We know that uh, we're not reaching our community. And would you become our pastor? And I laughed at them and said, no. I'm raising our kids on the ranch. Then I'm going to seminary. Then I'm going to become a preacher. And that encounter with them speaking for God, my response was, no, that's not my timeline. And I rejected that encounter with God. They said, would you keep filling in until we find a pastor then? So we would fill in, we would drive down, it was about 80 some miles to the church building and I would preach every week and every week they would say, we see God's hand on you, would you please become our pastor? And every week I began to give disingenuous excuses. As I look back now, I was lying to them. Uh, I wouldn't have said it was lies at the time, I was not mature enough to see that. You know, you and I's response when we have an encounter with the living God has profound impact on our everyday life. One Sunday, or one Monday morning, I was saddling up a horse I had bought off a bucking string. He'd quit bucking hard enough to be in the rodeos. And so I bought him because I thought I could train him. And he was doing awesome. And I was riding down to my neighbor's house to help him sort some bulls real cold, crisp November morning. Sunday before, the day before, I had rejected the people's uh, uh, gesture from God or call from God on my life. And I was about to find out that when you stiff-arm God, when he encounters you and speaks to you, that there can be some real repercussions for that. As I rode my horse down through this steep draw and came up on the other side, the keeper, which is a little strap about that long, broke between my front and back cinch, and my back cinch slid back on that horse's sensitive flank area. And when he came out of that draw, he blowed in two and was bucking across a large sagebrush flat. I rode him for a while, but then he jumped uh, to the right and then 
fucked back to the left, and I fell off on his left side, and this, this leg stuck in the stirrup, and he began to buck and drag me across that sagebrush flat. And as I was being drugged across that flat, I had another encounter with God. You and I's response to our encounters with God in the big things of life have tremendous influence. But also, when you and I encounter God, maybe even in the majesty of a moment here in Rochester, on Kenosha Lane or wherever we're at, your response is going to affect your life today. And what I have learned in my life is that when I encounter God, my responses to Him get revealed, a right response gets revealed in my everyday life. And I've observed this in my life and in other lives, and so this morning I'd like to just think about the majesty of God momentarily and then see how that works its way out into our everyday life. As our dear sister read earlier, Psalm 93.1, The Lord reigns, He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed in majesty and is armed with strength. The majesty of God is this Hebrew word that encompasses, in, 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 to try to translate it in English, a kind of clunky but all-amazing reality of God. The definition for majesty could be the comprehensive acknowledgement of God in His power, in His creation, in His presence, in His holiness, and in His grace and love, in His sovereignty, in His faithfulness, in His pursuit of us, in His salvation of us, and His revelation to us through His Word and the world around us in His creation. That's a tough definition to think about in the majesty of God, and we, can, we could plumb its depths, right, for, for the rest of eternity. But what's your response to the majesty of God? How are you going to react or respond today? I have learned through a lot of trial and error, more error than trial, that my right response to God does some things to me. And my passion for our Berean Fellowship of Churches is that we have a fellowship of churches that respond rightly to the majesty of God. One of the things I've noticed is that when I have a right response to the majesty of God is it bur begins to burn away my complaining spirit. It burns away complaining. Complaining is an act of worship of self. Is my life all about me and my wants? Has the idol of comfort caused me to complain all the time? You and I, as Christ ones, as blood-bought children of the Most High God, should not be defined by our whining, self-centered complaining. Many times in our individual family units, because it's we think safe, somehow even safe from the majesty of God and His holiness, we begin to establish habits of complaining to, with our spouse or to our spouse or in our family. 
I, I ask you this morning, if I could get your spouse and they, had, if they, they were separated from you and could be honest, would they say that you are a complainer? Or if I could ask your kids, is the soundtrack that goes through their brain one of a parental unit or both of them just complaining? Or if I could talk to your coworkers or fellow church members, would they say that you're a complainer? Friends, the majesty of God both calls and empowers us. A right response to the awesomeness of the power of God causes us to not live our lives as just self-centered jerks complaining all the time. God's Word says, and I would remind you, that the human author, carried along by God the author, is writing this from being unjustly imprisoned, the Apostle Paul. And he says, do everything without complaining and arguing in Philippians chapter 2. Do everything without complaining and arguing so that no one can criticize you. Live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse uh, people. Friends, when you and I don't live constantly complaining, we shine. When I talk to my unsaved friends, of which I have many, sometimes I'd rather deal with unsaved people than Christians. They're easier to deal with. Sometimes they're more honest. But I ask them, what do you think of us Christians? And they say, well, you sure fight and complain about a lot. That's their perception of us. You fight about really weird things. And some of us, some of that is legitimate. We need to take a stand on some things. But a lot of it is because we have forgot the majesty of God and because we worship the idol that life ought to go around our personal preferences, so we complain. Oh, dear ones, let's be a people who respond rightly to the majesty of God and allow it to burn away our complaining. A second reality that I've found when I respond rightly to the majesty of God is it reveals my cynicism. Cynicism is, right, you're a fault-finding critic. <laughs> Cynical people, and maybe you're one that are here today, and there's just this constant thought process of criticism, of fault-finding with me as I preach this not right now, or the worship team, or the building, or the someone else. And your, your whole inner world is basically one of being a fault-finding cynical person. How's that working out for you? How much joy is that bringing into your life? How, how, how's that helping your married life? How's that helping if you're single in your everyday life? My friends, cynicism ruins our lives. Cynics say it's never going to work. Cynics say that person's never going to change. Cynics hide under the cover of, I'm just being a realist. But my friends, you and I are committed supernaturalists who believe that God is majestic and big and yet still personally working in our lives. What are you believing God for this morning? 
Are you your own God? And so you're just a cynic? I appreciate Abraham in our revealed Scriptures, right? Abraham, flawed man. But the overall tenor of his life was one of faith. He believed God and God credited it to him as righteousness. He was always building an altar and worshiping God. The Apostle Paul sums up his life in Romans. One of my favorite all-time passages of Scripture. In Romans chapter 4 and verse 20, Abraham never wavered in believing God's promise. In fact, his faith grew stronger and in this he brought glory to God. He was fully convinced that God is able to do whatever he promises. Are you a cynic saying my marriage is never going to change? Are you a cynic and saying this, this church can never change or whatever it is? Maybe the Spirit of the living God who raised Jesus from the dead is allowing you to see God in His majesty today and allow it to burn your complaining away and reveal your cynicism so that it begins to change the everyday fabric of how you live your life. There are thousands of people in this, this community who do not yet know Jesus as Savior. And they need a healthy, life-giving church of people who've encountered the majesty of God and instead of stiff-arming Him, instead of excuse-making, they say, burn away my complaining, cynical attitude, God. Make me more like Your Son. Because when you and I respond rightly to the majesty of God, it begins to create a healthy culture in us individually, and then the culture of our homes and our workplaces and in our local church. A culture of grace. A culture of humility. A culture that's not defined by cynical complaining. But a culture that believes God with a holy audacity that He is still at work. God can change the culture of your family unit. God can change the culture of local churches that they forget about fighting amongst themselves about dumb stuff and they begin to be uh, not worship their personal preferences. And they say, oh, what is our mission here to reach lost people and see authentic disciples being made for Jesus Christ? The culture of our inner self. Some of you need to have Jesus do a miracle of grace because you were raised in a cynical, complaining culture in your family of origin and it has stained you and, 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 and wrecked you. I'm telling you, Jesus is still in the business of doing miracles. And He can miraculously begin to transform you out of the cynicism and criticism. I love the history of the early church. We're going to look at Acts 2.42, but just to re-remind you, right? The churches are going to start. There's about 120 people praying in an upper room, right? They're just passionately praying. What a, what a beautiful thing. 120 people, about the perfect size of the church. Man, this is great. The Holy Spirit comes. And then Peter... Remember Peter, good old Peter, rough-hewn, screwed up as a wooden watch Peter. 
filled with the Spirit of God, gets up and preaches. Do you remember this in Acts 1? Do you remember when he preaches? What happens? 3,000 people get saved. The church goes from 120 to at least 3,120. As president of the Berean Fellowship, I hear all kinds of things. But one of the things I consistently hear is, well, we, we like our small church. Big churches just have too many problems. I always say, have you read your Bible? God did a miracle, and the church grew to a mega church overnight. Did they have problems? Yes. But did God do miracles in spite of their problems? Yes. Acts 2.42, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. This culture brought about by the Spirit of God needs to be have, have a continual passion in Christ ones today of, Oh Lord, may I not limit the beautiful culture of Christ because of my cynicism and complaining. May we see You work, God, in such powerful ways that we are devoted to the Word of God. That we are devoted to sharing our lives and doing life together in authenticity and the grace that allows us to be real and not just fake. To sharing in meals together. To taking the Lord's Supper and doing this in remembrance of Him. And prayer, not as a duty, but as an outworking of the Spirit where we say, God, we need You. I Sometimes my days... I want to be more of a complaining cynic than a Christ one. Change my heart. A right response to the majesty of God creates a healthy culture in our inner, in our inner being and then outworking into every facet of life. I've observed that a fourth right response in my life to the majesty of God as it begins to or, or re-clarifies my call. You and I have all, each been have different assignments of God. A, a unique calling where God has said, if you're mar- are you married in here today? If you're married, your unique assignment is your spouse. That's a call from God. You might want to trade them in for a different model. But God's plan was that you established a covenant And that is your assignment. Are you single and are here today? Maybe for a season, maybe for the rest of your life, has God given you that assignment, that calling? Are you called to serve in a specific way here at Rochester Community Berean Church? All of us have unique and different assignments or callings from God that we tend to forget or minimize or shirk at. And yet I have been on my knees this week begging the Spirit of God to work in some of you because some of you forgot your unique assignments. Some of you have excused your way out of being fully committed to that call that God has for you. Maybe to your spouse or to your church. Maybe at work. I don't know. But I do know that God in His majesty can say, remember? 
Remember, this is my assignment. This isn't just some social construct that you're doing out of just because that's the flow. No, I have called you for this specific spouse. I've called you to that specific job. I've called you to be the parent. I've called you teenagers to honor my mother and father. I don't know your specific assignments, but God does. And maybe you need clarification this morning under the majesty of God where you're like, God, I surrender. (laughs) Yes, God. You're God. I'm not. You have given me this specific assignment and some of those assignments we don't want. Some of these assignments in life we would just as soon not do. But God in His glory and in His sovereignty has uniquely arranged for us in that assignment, and we need surrender and submission. Paul said it this way in Ephesians 4, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. And then the fifth reality that I have observed both in my life and others of a right response to the majesty of God is it begins to free us from comparison. Comparison is the cancer that is ruining millions of lives currently. Social media has made us so aware and allowed us to compare. And my body isn't like that person's that is posting online. My my possessions are different than what they're posting online. A lot of our anxiety, listen to me, Don't, don't listen right now. God, wants to speak to you. Some of you don't realize that you're living your life in constant comparison. And the majesty of God is transcending that right now. And you need to realize that a lot of your stress, a lot of your anxiety, a lot of your even your depression can be traced back to A comparison mindset that is cancerizing you. The beauty of authentic Christianity is we don't have to live constantly comparing ourselves to other people. That you and I can be set free and our body type might be different, but it's not wrong. That you and I might have had some tough things in our upbringing, but because of Christ... We can write, allow God to write a new story through us. I want our Berean Fellowship to be filled with people, individuals in every one of our 55 churches who've chosen as an act of worship in the power of the Holy Spirit to say, God, I'm sick of comparing myself with others. I'm sick of it. I repent of that prideful attitude. I repent of some of those things that have been ingrained to me because of the sins done against me. And I recognized your authority and your majesty to allow me to quit living in the self-justification or self-condemnation that comparison brings. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. The Apostle Paul was raised and enculturated to be a comparison guy. 
The Pharisees compared everything with everybody. They lived for the put-down. They compared their own righteousness to the worthless pigs that lived in the rest of the world. The Apostle Paul, think about this, had to overcome the legalistic mindset of Phariseeism that caused him to live comparison. And how did he grow in Christ? How was he set free in Christ? He became so free in Christ, he says, as for me, it matters very little how I might be evaluated by you or any human authority. There can be a holy indifference in us Christ ones that, that says, I'm going to let God define me, not what my current society or what legalism wants to define me as. The Apostle Paul goes on to say, I don't even trust my own judgment at this, at this point. You and I have to get to that point where we're like, ugh. We're trying to define ourselves when we, when we have to get to the point of letting God, we have to be who God declares us to be and defines us as. Paul says, my conscience is clear, but that doesn't prove I'm right. It is the Lord himself who will examine me and decide. You and I are masterpieces of God. If we're believers, oh dear ones, the majesty of God rightly responded to allows us to not live in the cancer of comparison. And then the sixth reality of a right response to the majesty of God is it calls us to consecration. To being set apart for holy use. Grace is not the freedom to sin. Grace is the power to recognize that we'll never get it right. But in Christ we can grow in our personal sanctification process. God's word is clear. 2 Corinthians 7.1 Because we have these promises, dear friends, let us cleanse ourselves from everything that can defile our body or spirit and let us work toward complete holiness because we fear God. Salvation is all of Christ and none of us. But on some level, and I don't know how you define this locally, so you slash my tires if I'm going to get this wrong. But at some point, personal sanctification involves us too. Where we decide now what I'm watching on my phone is not a consecrated life. Those cuss words I'm saying really aren't bringing glory to you, Jesus. Those movies that I'm consuming just really are messing with my head and causing cynicism and comparison and complaining. At some point... Every one of us believers has to make some choices and it's going to be different and we need grace with each other. But the reality is, is God's word is God's word. And we can't cut this verse and there's a ton more out of scripture. Let us work toward complete holiness because we fear God, not in order to prove ourselves to God or earn our salvation or earn enough to keep our salvation, but as a right response to the awesome majesty of God. And then finally, and right, you've got to keep a sermon short, right? We could add more to this, 
right responses to the majesty of God, but this is what I dreamed up, makes us never lose the wonder of our conversion. I want to talk to some of you who've been Christians and you got saved early on. You've been a Christian pretty much all your life. Don't lose the wonder that God saved you. The majesty of God causes us to see the beautiful miracle of grace that allowed us to get saved at an early age. But many times, older Christians who've been saved most of their life kind of like, eh, whatever. Dear ones, it's a miracle that God saved you and me. Especially you. (laughs) Have you lost the wonder? Lost the sense of God somehow, mysteriously yet majestically having His Spirit work somehow, whether you were four or forty? Opening your eyes to see your sinfulness, your inability to save yourself, And then seeing the beauty that God so loved you that He gave His one and only Son that if you would believe in Him that you will never perish but have everlasting life. A lot of our loss of enthusiasm and service in the local church and in our home is because we've lost the wonder of our conversion Where God says, listen, I'm going to transfer you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. The beauty of authentic salvation through faith alone in Christ alone allows you and I to begin to recognize that I stand before a perfect and holy God, not as some stupid sinner, but as a sanctified saint clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And that begins to redefine ourselves And we respond rightly to the majesty of God doing this miracle of grace in our life. And we begin to say, I don't want to be the complaining cynic. Create this new culture in my heart and in my interpersonal relationships that allows me to be free to accept your assignments on my life. That I don't have to live constantly comparing that, that you are calling me to this life of consecration and you were the one who saved me and converted me. The Apostle Paul is, is getting ready to croak. He'd been a Christian 30 years probably, maybe more by this time. And he writes, is this a man who'd lost sight of the miracle of his conversion? No. This is a man who writes, Oh, how generous and gracious our Lord was. He filled me with the faith and love that come from Christ Jesus. This is a trustworthy saying and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and I'm the worst of them all. But God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of His great patience with even the worst of sinners, then others will realize that they too can believe in Him and receive eternal life. 
all honor and glory to God forever and ever. He is the eternal King, the unseen one who never dies. He alone is God. Amen. That is a man who never lost the wonder of his conversion. And let's allow the Spirit of the living God to work that in our hearts. May we be filled with joy, not worshiping the mystery of life, but worshiping the majesty of God. So why did God get you here today? How are you going to respond to this sermon from some traveling cowboy preacher? Shrug your shoulders and go on with your day? Continue in your self-justification of your cynical, complaining heart and life? Go on comparing, spitting on the majesty of God in a sense. True victory in the Christian life isn't won through struggle or self-effort. It's won through surrender. Our response to the majesty of God in those encounters with His majesty have, have great impact on our everyday life. As that horse drug me across that sagebrush flat in northern Sioux County, Nebraska. And I had an encounter with God, and God was like, Scott, don't play games with me. Do you know I've called you to be a pastor and a preacher of the gospel? You're lying to those people, giving disingenuous excuses. And my response to that encounter with God was, God, if you will get me out of this alive, I'll serve you the rest of my life, no matter the cost, even though I'd rather be a cowboy. That moment, my right leg, my spur on that boot caught a piece of sagebrush, and it jerked me out of the saddle. And I lay there on that ground saying, I'll serve you, God, I'll serve you. You win. They eventually found me and hauled me into the hospital. X-ray me. Remember this young resident doctor, all enthusiastic, in the medical field. Finally got a real patient in the little country hospital in Crawford, Nebraska. Gets to read the x-ray and he comes in enthusiastically as I'm laying in the hospital bed saying, Scott, holding up the, the old time uh, x-ray, Scott, your pelvis, it's just, just like a woman's. And when she's had a huge baby through vaginal de delivery, it's just popped wide open. <laughs> he was all excited. <laughs> I wasn't near as enthused as he was. But I knew that God in His sovereignty had worked specifically in my life so that I'd quit playing games with Him. God will do whatever it takes to get your attention. It might not be as dramatic as getting bucked off a horse and drug. It might be this service this morning where you're like, you're God. I'm not. 
I'd encourage you to respond rightly. Our Father, we thank you. And as the worship team comes, we ask your Spirit to do that miracle of grace that causes us in our pride and rebellion to say we surrender. We submit. You are God, we are not. We are willing to accept your assignments in our life because we've encountered you in your majesty and you are awesome. Oh Lord, we choose to surrender to you. In your name, Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.